What is it like to have autism or ADHD or have a mental illness like bipolar or depression? While we know that these different conditions are often diagnosed by the healthcare system, what is it like to live differently brained? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Jacinta Dietrich. Jacinta is one of two hosts of the Differently Brained podcast and is autistic. She grew up in a family that faced significant mental health challenges that were compounded by a lack of support from the health system and public institutions like work and school. She took these experiences into creating a podcast about neurodivergence and mental health. The Differently Brain podcast is hosted by two people who live with neurodivergence and mental illness. Today, we talk about her journey, both life before and life after diagnosis, and the complexity of that process. She shares how her podcast has created a community of people that can share conversations about what it is like to live with a different brain rather than having your life pathologized by others. And we have a lovely chat about what it means to be a change maker and indeed what it takes to make change in the world. So let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome, Jacinta. It's delightful to have you with us today on Changemakers. Thank you so much. I feel like you've, you've taken a little journey from the from the uh, Differently Brain podcast and flown in today to the Changemakers podcast to have a conversation with us. And it is so great to have you and your podcast. Thank you. It makes me feel so special. <laughs> well, oh, it's really, I think it's an exciting thing you're doing. So it'll be great to talk about it more. So to start... You know, we are always ask our delightful guests to, I guess, to, to contextualise themselves for, for our audience by, by answering the question, what kind of change maker are you? It's really interesting. Um, and I've thought about it a lot since, you know, listening to the podcast and things like that. And I still, I still don't think I see myself as a change maker exactly, but more of like a conversation starter, which I guess in its own way is making change in terms of little ripples and things like that. But I think the biggest thing that I do is have those daily conversations around mental health and neurodivergence with people individually and hope that that ripples out and it makes a change. So it feels like a really little thing and it sounds really little and I definitely know that I minimize it, but it also feels really special to me. I'm really unique and individual. Yes. And I think that we could dig into this question of what is big and what is small social change or change making, because <laughs> I think that they that the small in inverted commas sometimes gets a bad rap. And sometimes the big is uh, blown up to not necessarily be describing as much as it actually is. So we can sort of pull pull that apart. But you know, you you don't need to call yourself a change maker. You say potato, I say potato. <laughs> I think that's fine. I think there's plenty for us to talk about in terms of brains and how the world works and how it needs to shift that we can have a conversation about today. So 
One of the interesting things that you do is this podcast just trying to, to lift up awareness and understanding about and, and experience around different types of brains, whether it's neurodivergence, autism, ADHD, or mental, mental health and mental illness. That's a really cool thing to have started doing. I'm wanting, Jacinta, for you to take us back, take us back as far as you think is relevant to tell us why on earth did you think that that was something we needed to do today? That was also lovely. Thank you. Um, I don't come here for compliments, but I'll take them. I think that mental health has always been a really, really big part of my life. It's, you know, a really big part of my family and things like that. A lot of my family have experienced mental illness. Uh, my mum has treatment resistant depression and has spent a whole bunch of her life working on herself and, you know, going through trauma and counselling and therapy and things like that to, you know, work through it all and make things better. And I remember for a really long time, there was so little support, so little knowledge, so little understanding that it meant that not only did mum struggle, but it meant that we didn't know how to support her either because we didn't know who to go to. We didn't have those resources. We couldn't have those conversations because there was so much shame and stigma. You know, mum was really embarrassed that she wasn't able to do everything by herself. My mum's an absolutely wonderful person who takes everything on herself. And if she can't be perfect, um, she really sees it as like a huge moral and personal failing for herself. So there was a lot of stuff that was kept secret growing up. And there was a lot of conversations that probably should have been had that weren't had. And when those conversations were approached with medical professionals and things like that, they were still really shut down and we didn't get the support that any of us really needed because the mental health resources weren't there. Um, and they're still not there, obviously, but, you know, a decade ago, it was even harder to get support and things like that. So I think I've always been really aware of you know, mental health is part of your overall health and that it can be such a dramatic part of your life and really change the quality of your life and everything that you do and who you are as a person. And then later, I, you know, I also was being treated for anxiety and depression throughout my teenage years. I had a lot of perfectionist tendencies um, I put a, took on a lot of that stress and put a lot of pressure on myself. And then in the last few years, I started looking into the, the bits and pieces that maybe put it all together in a different way. So I started looking into autism, neurodivergence and things like that and decided, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know, but I want to go to someone who is because I do think that potentially this is part of my identity, part of my brain's wiring that I just don't know about that is making things harder for me than it needed to be. Um, and that's when I got can my I ask, can, autism. Can I, and I don't mean I'm interrupting at literally the climax of the story, but just no, to take no, it back before, it. before, before you ended up seeing the doctors. I mean, it, did COVID have any impact on, on, on this sort of on you having this reflection and this um, digging into questions around your own neurodiversity? So I started before COVID. I was. Um, oh, you were an early adopter. You're an early correct. Adopter. I, um, <laughs> I like you. for me COVID. And I know this is an incredibly privileged position. COVID didn't change my life all that much. I still was able to work from home. I lived with my sister and her partner at the time. So I was still with family. 
Um, I was still able to see my boyfriend because of the intimate partner restrictions and things like that. So I was very lucky. And also everything going online made it so much more accessible for me. It wasn't a big moment of pause and reflect for me in the way that it was, I know, for some other people, because the only difference was that there was now less social pressure and I wasn't, you know, last minute cancelling on things that I just couldn't do anymore. It was really that I'd um, started reading different books. So I've always read a lot of like, you know, YA and fantasy and things like that. And I came across a few contemporary YA books that had autistic protagonists. And that was the real thing that kind of hit the nail on the head for me where I was like, oh, oh, autism can look like that. And and that's exactly how I function in the world. There you go. Wow. Blessed literature as a space to create understanding and empathy. It is, you can get learning from so many different spaces. Oh, my gosh, that's a, a such a helpful, like, a, a, a thank, you just blessed that. But I want to ask, like, you know, for some people, I guess, who are listening, they might also have gone through a diagnostic process and, you know, to full disclosure, like I haven't gone through a diagnostic process, but my son is autistic and I have a familiarity with that bit of the journey. Is there anything that you think that's important to share or was about that process? Like what did you learn about yourself, I guess? How did it change or did it change your perspective on yourself going through in both good ways and bad, I could imagine, depending on the kind of person you saw, of, of, of how, that pro- how that process shifted you, shaped you? I know that I was really, really lucky in the professionals that I lined up with and that whole pathway to diagnosis and things like that. Um, I'd reached out to a couple of autistic people who I knew spoke openly about their experience and getting a diagnosis and things like that, and they gave me a lot of um, insight into, you know, look into a professional who specializes in neurodivergence, look into getting a professional who maybe works with women, things like that, which really knocked down a lot of the barriers for me where I was really lucky. I didn't get told you make eye contact and you so clearly you're not autistic and things like that. Yes. I, because autism so, shows up so differently for, for women than for, for men because it was often diagnosed on male um, characteristics. Yeah. So it, it must have been a different experience. It could have been a terrible experience, I guess. There was risk involved in the process. I was really scared that I was going to have the same experiences that I'd heard from other people and that I was going to be dismissed, especially given that I saw mum get dismissed for so many years with, you know, very obvious PTSD um, and depression and things like that. It, it felt like if I couldn't prove it, that I must be wrong or weird. So I actually went into my first appointment with this huge Word document of all the things that like, I'd found on Instagram and online and in books and things like that being like, this has been sometimes stated as an autistic trait or characteristic. I do this. And I think I went in with like, three or four word document, like 10 point font, really small, just full of things that I was like, I don't know, but these are all things that are intrinsic to the way that I socialize with other people, that I function by myself, that I do daily tasks that seem very accessible and normal to other people that just hit in a different way for me. And apparently that was a very, very big indicator of like maybe there was something. It turns out that, you know, for people who worry about self-identifying, it's very unlikely you're going to do all of that research and then probably not be neurodivergent. (laughs) So I was 
yeah, really, really lucky of I took that advice and I went and found specialists who I knew would give me the time of day to be able to actually look into it because, you know, I know that I don't fit the stereotypes and things like that. Um, and I am confident that had I had a bad experience or been dismissed in any way, it would have been like crushing for me, like it is for so many people. Yeah, yeah. But given that you didn't have that crushing experience, you actually had a, an experience that was different, like that I guess was affirming to a sense that you had felt that you were different and then you had a diagnostic experience that affirmed that. How did that shape you? How did that affect your sense of who you are as a public person, as a, as a person who can, who can make things happen in the world as well as, 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 as just a, a, an entity in yourself? I think it really gave me a sense that I needed to give back because I had such a good experience because of the, the advice and the guidance and the wisdom from other people who were willing to share their story with me um, and, you know, share their information publicly and things like that. It felt like there was a really big part of me that then felt like I wanted to pass that on to other people. Like I, I never want anyone to have all of those awful experiences that we hear about, you know, and being non-affirmed and dismissed and ignored or told that you're just wrong or silly or dramatic, that's horrendous. And if by sharing the things that other people told me and the things that I found out along the way as well helps just one person not have that crappy experience, like I desperately want to do that because like no one wants to see anyone else suffer. And that's like, it just makes so much sense to me that it's something that I would be open about, especially because I know how damaging and hard it was for my mum and my whole family when we did keep everything secret and we didn't have that support and things like that. And I totally understand why we did at the time. And, you know, I completely get the situation was incredibly different, but I also recognise that I'm privileged that my situation is very different and that you know, I can speak openly about this and um, not feel shame and, you know, get rid of, well, not get rid of the stigma, but like wash off the stigma and things like that and still feel happy with who I am because that identity was just so affirming and it's such a core part of who I am that like, I love being autistic. I love having ADHD. It makes me who I am and it makes me do so many other things that I don't think I would otherwise do. And I mean, yeah, I think I, it, it helped me come to terms with being different and then made me want to champion, you know, the outcast, the weirdo, the different kid, because that's who I always related to in books and movies and things growing up that like, why wouldn't you want to be part of that? I just, it just in the back <laughs> of my mind, I keep thinking, and you don't think you're a change maker? <laughs> Which you don't have to accept any of that language. But my goodness, that is a pretty impressive treatise for public action and public responsibility. I just wish there were more people not being change makers like you <laughs> in the world. <laughs> so I think it's because maybe I don't, maybe I don't see the change. Like I don't mm. know if I'm having an impact or not. Yeah. Um, and I'll still do it even if I'm not, if it's like one person has one conversation, that's impact for me. Um, but I feel like when I think of the phrase like change maker, I think of all these, yeah, really big personalities who are making like legal changes and impacting policy and things mm. like that. And 
I'm just chatting with my neighbor and like my cousins and isn't this the problem? Friends. This is the problem with <laughs> how we think about change makers in the press. I reckon is you've got to be Mahatma Gandhi before you think you're yeah. deserving of of being able to 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 take action to improve our lives. And actually, there are very few Mahatma Gandhis, and there are very a huge ton of excellent forms of of change being made by people and you don't need to be some sort of superhero to make change. (laughs) Indeed, the idea that you did kills the idea that we can all make change and that's essential for being able to be good. I don't want to change your mind, just simply putting (laughs) out there that um, when I think of change makers, I think of people like you. So... Thank you. You're breaking the imposter syndrome down and I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, you you said that one of the things you wanted to do was to give back and to to create, um, I guess, you know, like people talk about throwing the ladder down to those to help people into a a better space. And I think that there's nothing better that you've done in this way to is the with the Differently Brain podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that particular tool? Like this is where you, where I think you're doing a lot of making change, creating a safe and understanding and uh, accepting space to be who we are in this world. And we don't all need to be the bloody same because we're not. Tell us about, tell, just tell us a bit about why you decided to set it up and where the idea came from. Like why did you decide a podcast of all things? It's a good question and probably one that I still don't fully know the answer to, to be honest. Um, It came about because, you know, I was looking through all different forms of like media and storytelling and things like that, trying to find other experiences like mine. And so, you know, I found a lot of books and things like that on Instagram when I was going through the, you know, self-identification process and looking into getting a diagnosis and things like that. But then afterwards I was like, okay, well, I know, but how do other people live with this? Like I, I can see how it works in fiction and I can see how it works for that particular character in that particular story and things like that. But I, I desperately wanted more and I wanted something that crossed around neurodiversity and mental health. So when, you know, you punch in autism into podcasts, they're very specific and I totally get it. Um, you know, if you are autistic and you, you don't have, you know, multiple different bits and pieces, that's, that's your thing. And you're obviously not going to talk from a place of experience about those, but because I got surprised with an ADHD diagnosis as well, because I didn't actually expect it. I thought I was just autistic. Um, And then when we did the screening process, my psych brought it up and got me to do a bunch more screening. Um, And it turns out I'm the combo. It was really hard to find information around how that works, especially like with everyone's Venn diagram of, you know, autism and ADHD or whatever their vibes are is going to be different, but mine's really close. And when it's not really close, they clash really hard. And so I was looking for how on earth do other people like function? How do they work? What is going on? What do they do on a daily basis? How do they get up, go to work, have a social life, all those things. And it was really hard to find. There was a lot of stuff that was really specific, but my biggest problem with a lot of it, and that has changed over the, the, you know, last year or so since, you know, I started thinking about doing my own project. A lot of the time it was potentially like generally, and I am definitely generalizing here, but what I found was it was a co-host with lived experience and then someone from the medical field who oh. didn't have lived experience. 
Oh, dear. Okay. And Which I, is fine, uh, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I understand, um, but that meant that they came at things in a different way to what I was looking for in that um, a lot of the awareness and content that they produced was, like, teaching you what stimming is and, like, t- talking about the terms um, and the individual parts and kind of breaking them down, mm. and that's not what I wanted. I wanted a whole person telling well, you their live whole... It. It's your life. Yeah. It's not like That's it. 16 sweet to understand words that have been conceptualised and pathologised by a profession, which is not terribly bad that it's been well understood by a profession's, thank you, professionals, but it's there is something different in what you're describing, which is your these things are embodied in you mm. and they're not we're not going to break off and talk about stimming and not relating relate it to forms of inattention or other phrases that people want to use. Like it's about how you live your life. And also the negative criteria, I think, is also a lot mm-hmm. of the words that are used around autism or mental health, they're, they're, we've all got disorders apparently, you know, like we're all oh, yes, disorders, indeed. right? And my son, who's who's now 12, was diagnosed when he was five, he calls it an in-order. It's not a disorder, mum, it's an in-order. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, why are we using this language, you know? It's different, but it doesn't have to be negative. Like it's, but it's framed, can be framed negative in some of that pathologizing discourse. It definitely is. I like to think of it as I don't have a lack of attention, I just have a certain amount of attention for boring tasks and a, just a load more for the things I'm interested in. Like I don't and have... And that just makes, that just makes you discerning. Like... That's it. I know what I like <laughs> and um, dishes isn't it, turns out. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, these are great strengths. You know, these are great strengths as, as well as things that can produce challenges in a world that's neurotypical. In a world that doesn't value this diversity, it can, it can be a really challenging thing. But they're not challenges in and of themselves necessarily. They're no, and that was it. Challenges. That was the communication, the communications. Those were the conversations that I wanted to bring forward in the podcast. I wanted to show, hey, these are full whole human beings and, you know, you don't break off little pieces of personality in the way that you, I just forgot we're on a podcast and did air quotes. Um, like you don't, <laughs> but they were good air quotes. Very visual. Thank you. In the same way that a neurotypical person doesn't break apart parts of their identity and then talk about them as concepts, neurodivergent people and people who struggle with mental health or mental illness shouldn't either. Like we're whole people. And I think that was really missing in the conversations. So I genuinely have no idea why podcast because before this I wasn't a huge podcast listener and I never thought I would do a podcast I was one of those people was like ha 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 millennials and all their podcasts and then literally started one in my spare room um so I am the cliche I think it was just it was the form that I felt was most accessible to be able to get the most amount of stories because I wanted to show that everything is unique and that, you know, people have different challenges. People have different strengths. People have different skills. Some people struggle with it a little bit more. Some people love being neurodivergent and things like that. It's a real, you know, rainbow of situations and things. And I don't think that I could have captured it in a book or anything, or I'm definitely not like a songwriter so that, you know, that everything else that I thought potentially could work, um, I just, it wasn't going to give me the scope and breadth of story that I wanted. I mean, what I 
think is really powerful. I mean, you're talking about having sort of open-ended conversations with a community, right? You know, I've you know, listened yeah. to the podcast, different people come in, they share their story. They're people from all walks of life and they share how they, how they walk in life neurodivergent or, or, or living with mental health issues. And it, it kind of normalizes difference, right? I hate the yeah. word normal, but you know, like it, it <laughs> makes it, but it makes it clear that this kind of difference is everywhere and can be celebrated. It doesn't need to be put in a box and pathologized. And, you know, I, I say, and what I also like about the sort of open-ended conversation is that you link neuro, neurodiversity and mental health. Um, cause as I said, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't identify as, as neurodivergent. Uh, I, I don't have a diagnosis. Everyone else in my family does, but not me. <laughs> um, but I have bipolar. I have very serious mental, live with a very serious mental illness. And there's, there, it's different. It's quite, it's quite a different thing to having um, a neuro, neurodivergence in so many different ways, including the fact that one yeah. can go from crisis to acute and, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, acute to chronic. And, you know, like there's lots of differences, of course. But there is something about it that resonates. I think there's some lessons between in that they're, they're not, it's not always easy to see this difference. You know, you can't see my mental illness and I can't visually see your autism, at least apparently not, right? Like people people think probably... Oh, but Amanda, up in their haven't you heard? Uh, you can just tell someone's autistic by looking at them. Oh, yeah. and They and look autistic. Good on them for working that one out. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, well, I think that there's something interesting and I actually think it's also a bit bullshit to think that it's that they're, that these conditions are not invisible because I tell you what, it's pretty bloody visible if I'm having a high elevation <laughs> and I'm on social media, everyone can bloody well see it. It can be quite embarrassing or whatever, you know, like actually I think... There is some visibility to um, invisible, you know, brain um, dimensions because it is about who we are in the world. It's not just about some sort of thing that we tuck away inside our heads. But I think that it's interesting that you've put those those two together. Tell me a little bit about the space you're, you're trying to create. Uh, tell a little bit more about that space that you're trying to create by, by sort of providing a place where people can share about both uh, neurodiversity and mental health, where they can share it as part of their story. Is there, you know, what do you hope in a year or two, what do you hope this space is able to to create for, you know, an increasingly large community of people who identify as neurodivergent and the very large already community of people who have had mental health experiences? Mostly I just want to make people feel more comfortable having these conversations and asserting their boundaries um, and, you know, getting the accommodations that shouldn't be accommodations. It should just be, that's how you best work. Good for you. Great. Because that's how it works in other areas of life. And I don't understand why having a, a label or a different identity or a different brain, things like that, why that makes it different, why that's treated separately. And like the big reason that we did mental health and neurodiversity was because for me and my co-host, our mental health has been so tied to our identities um, and, you know, not knowing that I was autistic and had ADHD for so long meant that while school itself was relatively easy for me because I liked the routine and the structure and things like that, I really struggled when I got into the workplace and I needed to be more self-guided and things like that. And I didn't understand why I wasn't achieving in the same way as I was at school. I also knew like I was different socially and things like that. And that's, I think, a really big part of 
where the anxiety and the depression came from because I just didn't understand who I was and no one else did either. So it meant that my mental health suffered. So they were really tied for us for a really long time. So it felt silly to separate those when it's, you know, all in your brain as well. And, you know, I think there's a tendency with mental health to separate it out. Like it's not like compartmentalize it in a way um, (laughs) that physical health doesn't quite get the same treatment. I think it's important that, you know, beyond sharing like, you know, my lived experience of being autistic and having ADHD and things like that, I want people to take mental health days. I want people to have those conversations. I want people to know when they're not up for it and it's okay. Mm. Because I think the more that we understand ourselves and the more that we can communicate, the healthier we're all going to be. Like it doesn't make sense to me the way that it's all separated out and put into little boxes. And maybe that's just the way I Mm. see the world. Um, No, no, no. But I think that you're right, right? Like um, in terms of the box, I mean, there are lots of boxes that we're putting. We're putting these diagnostic boxes, you know, you know, because because of the link with with healthcare diagnosis, but also be also partly linked to to this that that um, particularly mental health sits in a healthcare precinct is that it's seen as private. You know, you should be mm. ashamed and quiet about your very unstable and difficult brain that's not going to be liked by anyone. There's all the stigma and everyone's going to not trust you and just keep it quiet and don't tell anyone. And that's not helping anyone who actually lives with a mental health. That's making people feel isolated. It's put, and it's definitely doing what you're describing, putting people in mm. in a box. And it's this separation, you know, is it, you know, in community organising. So that's you know how I came to change making. We talked about the difference between private life and public life, and it's in public life that you. You, you take action and things in the world change. And if things are just kept in private, that's not a space where where it's easy to make change because it's a, it's a different space. It's for family, it's for rejuvenation and so forth. But if your actual health and brain and existence is only shunted into a private space, it's almost like it's denying you the capacity to make change on those questions. So you're pathologised, right, take medication and get better, yeah. but you're not seen as someone who can be a political agent and make life better for you and other people like you. That's definitely, yeah, that really resonates. And I think again, such a big part of it was that people shared their story with me. And so I saw the power of people speaking about their situations, their lived experience and things like that. And I wanted to be able to give other people the platform, one, to share their story if they wanted to, because I know that it can really feel like, oh, well, you know, this one autistic person is in this field. So like, we're done, like quota finished. And it can feel really competitive in a yucky way. I only speak from like the creative fields and things like that, but it does feel like there's only space for one of us in a show, in a book, in a TV, in, you know, all those things in, in an office that I wanted to give other people the space where if they wanted to share their story and they didn't know how else to get it out there because there is so much gatekeeping and so many barriers and things like that. I wanted to build a place where people, one, felt comfortable talking to me because that's just really lovely and really special um, and something that I thought for a really long time I didn't like. I thought I didn't like other people. I thought I was antisocial and mean and snobbish and shy and all the labels that I got before I got autistic. 
Um, but it turns out I do really like talking to people. I absolutely love it. I love talking about their stories and sharing them. It just needed to be in situations that were safe and comfortable. And so if there's other people out there like me that feel isolated or crappy or like, you know, they're never going to be part of a normal community or whatever, I want to give that. Mm. I want to, yeah, correct. Yeah. I want to make that community because it yeah. w- it's, it's just so absent from my life until I actively went and mm. kind of started building this one. I sound very this- selfish. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> this one, this is this is what change makers do. If things don't work, they make the they make the world better, right? And this is what I'm hearing. This is this th- when you describe this sort of in inverted commas small change, this space where people can find themselves, people can tell their story, people can be affirmed, people can identify as different, they can recognise that their place in the world is a good place in the world, and they're not strange. The world can sometimes judge them, but the world can be a shitty place sometimes, and it's not them, it's the world that's the problem. I love this. I also love that in the in the podcast you actually have done some bigger push changes, you know, because we know that when it comes to, to neurodivergence and when it comes to mental health, that it's not just individuals who are somehow different or, you know, inverted commas, broken, and that the world is some sort of perfect system. We, we know that actually the system, whether it's schools or workplaces or community organisations or social, social security systems, that those systems can be predatory and problematic and can cause mental illness. They can cause stress and anxiety. Or they can push people who are not neurotypical out, you know, or not create space for them. You know, t- tell us about how you've taken on that. I know that you've done some some work around the discussions around ADHD in Australia and the NDIS, for instance. How how has that stuff, or to what extent are those questions about um, the challenges of the world, how are they relevant to the discussions you've had on the podcast? Thank you. You're so nice to me. <laughs> um, it's really true that a lot of those um, bigger places and institutions have been huge shitty places for me in my life or for my family. So, you know, a lot of the health systems and hospitals and things that we reached out to for decades for my mum just turned us away because she was being dramatic, because she was being silly, because of all of those nonsense labels that, and, you know, it's probably wider than this, but you know, those labels that women primarily do get, I think. So that was a really big part of like, I don't trust the medical system anymore. I have like, I love my doctor, but it's really hard for me to find a doctor that I feel comfortable with and that I trust because I watched so many medical practitioners who were meant to help fail to help or actively make the situation worse, whether through maliciousness or ignorance. And that still just breaks my heart. Like that put my mum and our family back years and years because not only did they not help, but they actively shut it down and told her that she was the problem. So that's a really big issue for me. And knowing, you know, that I got such a privileged and smoothed diagnosis journey where I, like, it's possible it's possible to be affirmed and supported and find your identity if 
people are willing to listen and if they have the training and if it's not this bullshit old school understanding of mental health and neurodiversity as taboo and stigma and things like that. I also realized recently I've been going through a bit of a reflection on for the last couple of years, like after my diagnosis until pretty well now, I feel like I had a lot of rose tinted glasses on like, if only I had have been identified earlier, things would be different, better. You know, I would have been able to do this, that, or the other, I would have achieved this, but it has, it's kind of recently been brought to my attention. I don't remember how it came up, but I've started thinking about it of, I wouldn't have felt safe at the school that I was at because the autistic kids that were identified throughout high school and primary school, you know, in the 2000s when I was at school, they were actively bullied, not just by students, but by teachers and other parents as well. Like it was horrific the way that they were punished for meltdowns and for acting out when, you know, they were bullied and, you know, the treatment and the way that everything was their fault was just so awful to watch that, you know, looking back, I probably wouldn't have told people. I, I would have continued to mask. Well, I also think that that what you're describing, like that story of the regret of of a life lived that you could have, you know, like you get diagnosed. You know, I, I had a gap of 12 years where I was without treatment and I sometimes look back at the time and it's like if only I had that would have been such an easier time to have not, <laughs> to have been being properly cared for rather than not care, but trying to care for me and my husband, trying to care for, yeah. for me without any support, you know, like look back at those times. And I think that that is a really common thing for people to do, right? You know, especially, yeah. you know, but lots of adults getting diagnosed, you look back and go, oh, if only I'd found medication earlier in my life, my life would have been easier. I also think that there's this, this piece of, we come to these moments well like you like think what you just described is so prescient which is we come to these moments when we when the moment is ready for us that it's safe and capable and we have the ability to open the door to the to this new information and not that it always goes smoothly sometimes like <laughs> you can open the door and someone punches you in the face like don't get me wrong it doesn't mean it's going to be easy but you, you regret is a nasty nasty beast and this space is one where it's so easy to spend time blaming yourself you know like you're the one who's responsible because mm. it's your brain in your head whereas actually we're often not able to come to this space because of how the world sees these things it's it's actually we come to it when we've finally got the space where th things are ready for us. Now that can be rough sometimes when it comes to mental health. I mean, I came to <laughs> my diagnosis by ending up for two months in a psychiatric hospital, like not always awesome, <laughs> but, but you know, like I, I, th I still think that this question of, of looking back and regret, that is, that's when we see it as private rather than as public. Mm. And the challenges that we're facing in this space are, are not born of our brokenness, our internal brokenness, but a need for the world to be a better place for us. Yeah. And I still have a lot of guilt of, you know, I feel like I still feel a lot of regret and guilt that I, I didn't do things. I was just a kid. Like I understand how ridiculous that sounds, but you know, being a bystander in those situations and now knowing that, you know, we shared an identity even if it was 
presenting or feeling very different for us and that I didn't do anything and that, you know, those those students, those friends, those peers had a worse time because I didn't mm. know how to call it out at the time still feels really crappy and I still feel a lot of guilt and shame around, you know, I never actively participated in it, but I didn't stop it. I didn't do anything and it's still, yeah, really deeply upsetting for me that, you know, apart from the social side, school was such a safe and lovely place for me and the idea that it potentially wouldn't have been if I had understood myself better at the time or that I would have been actively keeping part of myself secret feels awful. And I think the idea that I would have hidden away part, like such a big part of who I am is probably like a really big driver of why I refuse to do it now, because I don't have to, I'm not going to keep it a secret. And it's not my fault if you make a space unsafe or traumatic. All I can do is try and not make that space awful for other people. And the only way to do that is just not taking the shit. And because we can't change (laughs) the past, even, even if, you know, we regret the past, we can't change the past, but what we can change is our movements going forward. Actually, Mm. we, we have a level of, a level of capacity to do (laughs) enormously interesting things if we, if we can reflect on the past and let the, let the past changes in positive ways. Yeah, I hear you. So last question, Jacinta, last question. So, you know, you've been doing all this work. You've become a public advocate around neurodiversity and public advocate for for autism, for autistic women and for mental health. How do you think that has changed you? It's still so funny to me when you say public advocate because, again, the imposter syndrome is like, you don't have a profile. People don't know who you are. What are you doing? You're just talking to yourself in your bedroom. (laughs) advocacy. Um, I think it's made me more aware of the world around me. I was for a really long time, really selective about, you know, what I engaged with and things like that. And like you said, you know, you have to come to things when you're ready. Um, And I was keeping myself in a safe space for a really long time and, you know, not engaging with these kinds of discussions because they were just too raw and it was too difficult and things like that. But I think now that I've had the time to process and I'm able to open up and, you know, look at the situation with a greater understanding, you know, every year is an extra year of knowledge that I have and things like that. Some of our systems really suck. And... (laughs) I just, That's I'm just, good knowledge, just I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not okay with that. So I think the older I get and the more I understand, you know, what is possible, especially after COVID and things like that, and the things that can be changed, I want to see those changes. I, I want, you know, ADHD to be considered a primary disability on the NDIS because it's outrageous to me that 50% of me deserves support, but the other 50% that impacts me equally doesn't doesn't warrant a look in like that makes no sense to me at all you know the fact that we'll do so much for physical health which to be fair that's getting rolled back so maybe not any (laughs) maybe not for a long time but 
the fact that physical health and mental health are treated so differently and funded so differently, it just drives me insane. And I think the biggest well, not thing... Not literally that, insane, but no. <laughs> it could drive you insane if it was... Uh, if it kept going, particularly, yeah. lack of support for mental health is a crisis. <laughs> but I think, you know, stepping into, to use your your words, uh, public advocacy, I think it's made me bolder. It's meant that, you know, I'm more willing to have these conversations now because I started having them and some people don't like it, but it didn't hurt as much as I expected it to. It wasn't as hard as I expected it to. And like, I'm not saying there's not crappy days. I'm not saying there's not crappy comments and things like that. Like haters going to hate. But I I think it's just meant that I've taken a step that I feel like I can't go back from now that I wouldn't want to go back from now of I want to push and I want to make change and I want to see things get better for, you know, people who were in positions like me people who ex- had experiences like my mum, because it, it should never have happened like that. Like those big institutions that we all fundamentally have to be part of because we live in a society and a community and that totally makes sense. They should be safe and they should be nurturing and they shouldn't re-traumatise. They shouldn't be the big thing that um, like destroys a portion of your life. I love it. I feel like you're a role model for everyone who's listening who thinks that they could do a little bit more but are not sure where they want to put their toe in the water or they're doing a bit and they want to do more. Just into everyone, just into not necessarily a change maker but doing a damn good job with making the world a bit of a better place. Thank you so much for joining us today, Justine. It's a pleasure. um, Differently Brained is a brilliant podcast. We'll put the link in uh, in the show notes for this as well. And good luck. I hope the podcast goes from strength to strength. Thank you so much. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there is plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. You can find the Differently Brain podcast on all the podcast apps, and there are also some links in the show notes. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and on Instagram and on threads. There we go. Early adapters are we. We're also on Twitter still at Changemakers99 and I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemakers.